When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm joined once more by Peter Hart. Hello, chums. Uh, now, today, Pete, we're continuing the story, or some might say saga. Saga, yes. Uh, of the uh, Fife and Forfar Yeomanry. Second. Forfa. Second. Second Fife and Forfar Yeomanry. And today we're looking at Operation Goodwood. We, we left them last time uh, following their horrific... Uh, exposure to the horrors of war on Hill One One Two. Yep, the whole of the whole of Operation Epsom had been a a rude awakening for them as to the reality of war, uh, and and now we move on to the next. They're off to the races again. Is a, a facile way of putting it because they're they're now going to be involved in Operation Goodwood. This was uh, a plan. It originated with General Miles Dempsey, as you remember, he's the commander of Second Army under Montgomery. And uh, Montgomery had uh, adopted this plan. The idea was for a battering ram smashing home uh, his massed armoured divisions uh, east of Caen uh, to, to be carried out on the 18th of July 1944. Now, what do you, what do, I mean, what you think, what I think of this plan is pretty well irrelevant. But I think a lot of more knowledgeable commentators have said this is misguided, isn't it? Uh, um, what do you think? Um, well, this was because armour was better used to exploit an opportunity that had already been created. Rather you know, than to create it. Almost like cavalry of old. Yeah. In that they're, they're bursting through when a gap is created. But um, this misuse of armour division, it reflects Montgomery's preoccupation to use artillery, air power and armour where possible to win his battles. To use technology and materiel... Oh, notice I did that the French way. <laughs> Rather than risk severe infantry casualties against the backdrop of his severe manpower shortage. Yeah, I, th- I think this is this is right. Um, he has a slightly mechanistic approach, Montgomery, in in things like this. Uh, what what is it? What do you think his main tactical objective is? We've discussed this, but just go through it for me again. Yeah, we said before it was to draw the main German armoured formation into a vicious dogfight in the eastern flank of the bridgehead, which would therefore allow the Americans the opportunity to secure a breakout to the west. Now, who's going to do it? Dem- Second Army, Dempsey and Second Army had three pretty f- pretty fresh armoured divisions ready to go, and they were the 7th Armoured Division, the 11th Armoured Division, and the Guards Armoured Division, um, which which Montgomery now was going to loose Loose like, like in hunting almost, uh, as a core in the open country southeast of Khan. Loose that, or loose? I noticed the guards were in there. <laughs> yeah, pretty loose, aren't they? Um, that, this area just southeast of Khan, that had only just been captured during Opera- Operation Charnwood, which went on from 7th to 9th of July. I have to be honest, I know, bugger all about that. Um, and it was, uh, to be made in conjunction with the, as you mentioned or I mentioned, Operation Cobra, which was the big breakout offensive which was to be made by the US first time that's the other army under Montgomery's overall control uh, which was commanded by Lieutenant General Omar Bradley now that part of the offensive is is going to be delayed until 25th of of, of July so that's a full week um so 
What, what, what do you think Operation Good was? It, it goes ahead on the 18th. Well, what do you think it is when it actually goes ahead? Well, it's become a secondary and limited offensive designed to destroy German armour and was not primarily designed to secure a decisive breakthrough. It would be backed by an enormous concentrated bombing rate to smash the German defences, followed by a stupendous artillery barrage. And this is what you were saying. This is the... Uh Use of machinery, use of of um, bombing, of of, of armour, rather than infantry, uh, to try and reduce casualties. Now, such higher grand tactical concerns were far above the mental horizons of the men of the second five and four fire, or indeed, to some extent, us. Well. <laughs> A great extent. Now, they were certainly pleased to hear of the mass bombing raid, which it was said would break all existing records in direct ground support. Now, they've got worries as well, though, because they can see that the area they're moving towards uh, is ideal for defensive warfare. Uh, and what they're facing, they're facing well-dug-in German tanks, anti-tank guns, fortified villages, that whole enemy of the British, if you that high from the First World War. Um, there's the threat of minefields, and there's batteries of hidden artillery. And these are scattered all around in the wooded ridges that overlook their path of advance through fairly open ground. There's something else worrying people. Well, yeah. Then there was the worry of German reserve panzer divisions. The operation may have been designed to attract them, but that was no consolation to the men that would have to actually face them in battle. Oh, goody, we're attracting the attention of two or three German panzer divisions. Yeah, that's what they didn't think. No. Uh, now, following the air raid, the uh, 11th Armoured Division would lead the attack from the concentration area around the Ranville Glider Airfield. Now, we've been there, and they're, they're, uh, that's uh, uh, it, it's where the gliders landed on D-Day. And that area is now a sort of museum and a complex. And the gliders were actually still there. In fact, many of the uh, 5-4-4 would take shelter in them uh, later on. Uh, shelter from the rain more than anything else. So, so where were they going from? Well... Uh, from the Ranville Glider airfield, they would move behind a massive creeping barrage, pushing across open wheat fields with the outskirts of Calm to their right and the Breville Ridge, the Bois de Bavant Woods and the village of Cagney on its left. Now they go forward, they cross two railway embankments. These are quite important in the story. The Calm Truan and the Calm Vimont railway lines um, then they'd swing slightly right where the ground sort of gradually rises upwards towards the wooded Bourquabas Ridge uh, sorry about my pronunciations but you know they're always crap and here the division would that was the, uh, the 11th were to take the villages of Bourquabas itself Hubert Folly and Bras or Brass I feel that there might be a need for a map to go up, Pete. No, yeah. Oh, well, I'll let you put one up then, Gary. Mm. Mm. I'll remind you. No. Now, behind them, the Guards' Armoured Division would swing to the left to take Vimont. So they're coming behind and they'd swing left. Oh, right, right. Yep. And finally, the 7th Armoured Division would move up, pushing between the other two divisions to take the villages of La Hogue and Secaval. Right, so sort of lifting and separating. Oh, God, you're back to the bras. <laughs> yes, it was the bras. Sorry, it was the bras that put that in mind. Oh, dear, I'm such a simple-minded soul. Now, um, the, the idea was that this would break through the main German lines of defence and allow a vigorous exploitation by armoured car units. That They're the real sort of cavalry-type uh, replacement, if you see what I mean. Um, well, um, supporting operations were to be launched by the First Corps on the left and the Canadian Second Corps around Caen itself. So, all in all, Seventh Corps would deploy some 750 tanks, while a further 460 would support the flanking attacks. So that's uh, uh, 1,200, 1,210 tanks. So that's a lot oh, of banging well tanks. Well done. Yeah, <laughs> maths with Pete and Gary. Um, now, um, did the Germans know what was happening? Well, from their observation posts up on the ridges and night aerial reconnaissance flights using flares, the Germans had been able to identify the concentration of armour at Ranville. Their defences were ready. Indeed, Rommel had already enacted... Is that Erwin Rommel? Uh, no, it's uh, Greg. Greg Rommel. Is that his cousin? <laughs> yeah. Now, Rommel had already enacted a thorough programme of defensive improvements throughout the intended battle zone. So what could the Germans deploy? Well, 
In total, it's been estimated that the Germans could deploy 324 tanks and self-propelled guns. Now, this is not going to be easy. And, and this is particularly because there was a fault in the planning process. Dempsey, well, what had Dempsey allowed, allowed for Germ- the depth of German defensive lines? Well, he'd lines. only allowed for German defensive lines that were, uh, in, in, uh, in fact, only four miles thick rather than the rather more intimidating breadth of 10 miles that the Germans had actually established. That's six miles different. I mean, I'm really just doing really... You're just doing brilliantly today. I'm going to take a massive... One last minute, that's 60 seconds... Thank you. (laughs) ...boost for the Allies, although they were unaware of it, was that a Spitfire attack on Rommel's staff car had wounded him badly enough to remove him from the front on the 17th of July. He would never return. Dun, dun, dun. Now, um, so, uh, there's a briefing process going through the whole, uh, the whole of the Second Army. And, uh, the officers, second, fife, and fourth, fourth, Germany, they're briefed as to their role. And, and they, I mean, because the, everything's, uh, the 11th Armored Division are at one format. But within that, the 29th Armored Brigade would be on, that's what the fife and fourth are in. They're on the left, and they'd pass to the left of the Le Mesnil Fremontal, uh, Sort of small, tiny, villagey, hamlety thing. Small, tiny, villagey. You could have just said Hamlet, really, couldn't you? I could. And then advance on Verrieres and Roquancourt. Uh, now you're having great fun today. Uh, yeah, I see. We're getting a lot of, a lot of that. So, so what? What is the other element in uh, in 11th Armoured Division? Just remind us who else is in there. Well, you've got the motorised infantry of the 159th Brigade, and they would advance to their right, clearing the villages of Couverville and Demerville some two miles from the start line before joining the 29th Armour Brigade in the final assault. Now, this will become controversial because actually uh, there's, they, they needed uh, motorised infantry on the left as well and they didn't have them uh, to, to clear the uh, villages. Well, we'll come to that. Now, uh, within... So that's what the uh, the, the 11th the Armour Division... But within that, what are the actual 54 fire states? So what, what's, uh, who's leading the attack or what's happening? Well, Major Sir John Gilmore's B Squadron would be on the left. Gotcha. Major Joe Powell's A Squadron on the right. Uh, Behind them, the Recce Troop and Regimental Headquarters. And then in the third wave, Major Chris Nichols' C Squadron. Now, uh, Major Sir John Gilmore, commanding B Squadron, he was certainly not enamoured with what he'd heard at the briefing. And this is what Major Sir John Gilmore of B Squadron says. He was a a wonderful person. I remember interviewing him. He was a Tory MP for years and years. Magnificent. uh, uh, More landed gentry. uh, Lovely chap. And this we said. I think that it was a bad plan, because if you fought in closed country, the enemy needed an anti-tank gun every hundred yards or so if they were to stop you. Whereas if you want, if you went to open country, a few anti-tank guns at long range could do a great deal of damage. The North African concept, which Montgomery brought in, was disastrous. And I can see what he means, because you have to have a lot of anti-tank guns to cover a crowded country where you can't see more than a couple hundred yards. I can see that. Yeah, he'd hit the nail on the head. Ideal tank country of open rolling fields was also ideal for hidden defenders, lurking in woods and villages with a clear line of sight over the fields. They would be advancing into a trap. Now, the second five and four fire yeomanry move off just after midnight. Uh, but the, the first problem is is just uh, logistical. What, what What is the first problem? Well, they've got to cross the Orne Bridge and that was a slow business. Oh, sorry. That's all right. That was a slow business, and it took them some four hours to reach the concentration area in the field just north of Ranville, where the gliders had put down on the 6th of June. Now, most of them had... I love this next quote, and it just it's just so much part of British Army life. Uh, most of them had their breakfast, uh, but many had subsequently had tummy troubles, which was uh, attributed to some nameless pollutant. Gary, what could that be? That got into their water supply. And you're going to say what, ha- what uh, Trooper Len Hutchins, three troop A squadron thought or, or experienced. This is perfect for you. We were sat there having breakfast. We had fried onions. And just as we were moving out, I had the diarrhoea. I had to jump out in the ditch. I think it was the fried onions. I got back in and we moved off. That was my first experience. 
That's a bad start. Well, he's done well if that's his first experience of diarrhoea. <laughs> now, um, for 05.45 on the 18th of, of I'm afraid we're, this, this, what, what's going to happen next is one of the most horrendous things. It's, it's as bad as the Norfolks, uh, at Kahima. At, uh, 05.45, the, the massive air bomber, air bomber. The this bomber, is on the 18th of July. That's, that's it. It begins. Uh, this is, now, this air raid is the magic ingredient that's designed to clear an eight mile path all the way to Borkobas Ridge. Uh, what's the scale of it, Gary? Oh, it's, it's huge. You've got 1,056 RAF bombers and they would bomb all along the flank. You can already guess what I'm going to ask you at the end of this. No. 482 American medium bombers would bomb along the line of advance using fragmentation bombs to reduce uh, any Cratering. I nearly oh, said uh, yeah. catering then. Yeah, cratering just so that it, the ground's cr- clear for the tanks, yeah. And 539 American bombers were meant to eradicate the identified German artillery positions that lay beyond the range of the British medium artillery around the villages of Four, Solier, Bra, and Frenoville. So how many in total bombers would that be, Gary? Uh, 1,056, add 482, add 539, Pete. 2,000. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll never check it <laughs> now sadly not all the wooded ridges were included in the target areas which was unfortunate as many harboured German artillery batteries now what was the impact of this bomber raid well it was absolutely stupendous in the book uh, what's that book called Burning Sausages Burning uh, Steel by Peter it. Hart available uh, now in, in available Aubrey, now go Aubrey, and buy your copy today in that I've got some quotes from some of the Germans and what a bloody time they had the ground seems to quiver uh, there's thousands of bombs detonated across the target areas there's carpet bombing of the area and then and then when that subsides subsides what happens then Gary well then you got the preparatory artillery preparatory 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 artillery barrage uh, which commenced blast, blasting away uh, identified German batteries I think I've borrowed the the, the, the dog's teeth, teeth. <laughs> um, and only then well, well uh, do you know I think this is slightly uh, this is slight nerves from both of us because what's coming up is so bad. Then the tanks begin to edge forwards. And, and, and one problem is, is immediately obvious. And it's another almost logistical. It's a planning problem. What's the problem that they, they hadn't been foreseen properly? Well, a minefield, which was laid by the 51st Highland Division, had not been properly lifted, leaving just four narrow cleared lanes. So this is for all these uh, the, all these tanks to go through, yeah, is it? Yeah, the 29th Armoured Brigade was the first to advance, with the 3rd Royal Tank Regiment, in, Regiment feeding through the gaps, followed by the 2nd, 5th and 4th Fire Yeomery, and finally the 23rd Azars. Now, once it got through, so they get through pretty easily, they begin to shake into their attack formation. But behind them, behind them, what's going on behind them, Gary? Well, you've got problems which are caused by the pinch points at the bridges and minefields, and, and that would pr- uh, proliferate, severely delaying the advance of the Guards Armour Division and 7th Armour Division. Now, H-hour, 07.45 on the 18th of July, the massed armour starts to move forward behind the creeping barrage, which sweeps the ground ahead of them with a line of bursting shells. This It must have been an amazing sight. And, and redolent, of, of course, creeping barrages, the lines of shells moving ahead of the infantry uh, in the Great War. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to be Lieutenant William Steele Brownie. Let's just call him Steele Brownie, uh, of 4 Troop, commanding 4 Troop A Squadron. To us in the lead, it was a solid grey wall of shell bursts, 200 yards ahead. It was hard to believe that anything could live in it. We drove on in formation for about a mile. We had never before driven in formation for more than a couple of hundred yards, except on exercises. Was it all over bar the shouting? No, it wasn't. Now, nevertheless, the combination of the mass bombing and the barrage had devastated not only the frontline troops of the 16th Luftwaffe Field Division, but also the more forward elements of the 21st Panzer Division tanks were destroyed. Artillery, artillery was also put out of action and infantry defenders shredded. Communications to the rear areas were disrupted. 
Now, after a couple of miles, as planned, the infantry of the, the motorised infantry of 159 Brigade move off to the right to clear uh, the villages of Couverville and Demoville. The main body of the tanks dri- drives onwards, heading straight for the first embankment. You remember that was the Khan Truan Railway, which they reach at around 0830. And you're going to say what, uh, what, what Captain Douglas Hutchison, uh, Headquarter Troop A Squadron thought. We were going through quite a broad corridor of openish ground between a string of villages on the right and the left. They were being attacked by concentrations of medium artillery. That was separate from the creeping barrage. We were supposed to see the barrage and keep close up behind it. The difficulty was that when we got the first railway, there was an embankment there. It was quite a business. You couldn't just sort of drive across in in line ahead because you had to select places where you could up the bankment and over. I think it means up, go up and over yeah. the bankment. It wasn't all that difficult, but it just showed things up a little bit. By the time we got across to the other side, we'd lost the barrage. Now, but now this time, up to that first railway embankment, uh, there hadn't been much German return fire. Um, uh, yeah, that first embankment's six foot high in places. It's more a serious obstacle and anticipate. And as uh, Hutchison indicates, it's slowed pro- pro- progress. Now, after that embankment, the, uh, the, 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 the fields broaden out again, so it's open ground again in front of them. And the second 5-4-4 Yeomanry move up to advance alongside the 3rd Royal Tank Regiment, who are on their right. So they're on the left, 3rd Royal Tank Regiment. Why didn't we choose the 3rd Royal Tank Easier Regiment? Easier to say. We, we just, <laughs> it would have been so much easier than the 5 from bloody 4 for. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is what Captain Douglas Hutchison said one was intent on trying to keep in line it was part of the drill for this operation the idea was we could get sufficient weight of armor forward behind the barrage that it would have the power to maneuver tactically when it got beyond the second railway line a squadron were the front rank on the extreme left b squadron was to our right and then the third royal tanks to the right of that again I was concentrating on keeping in line, as far as one was able to, with other members of the squadron. Now, ju- now ahead of them lay the defended farmhouse of Le Mesnor Fromental, which is occupied by a battery of self-propelled guns. Now, these uh, had been sort of cobbled together by uh, Major Walter Becker. He's one of the German heroes of this battle. Uh, they're, they're improvised self-propelled guns, and they are bloody deadly. Uh, now, the, the third Royal Tank Regiment, they're passing the, the, the Le Mesnel from until to the right, and they suffer some tank losses as they did so. The second Fife and 4-4 Yeomanry went to the left, between the farm and on their left, the shattered village of Cagney. Now, this village of Cagney is going to be important, Gary. Now, at first, the second Fife and 4-4 Yeomanry seemed to be getting away with it, as A and B squadrons approached the second embankment, which carried the Carnvimont railway line at about 9.30. These first two squadrons got past relatively unscathed, then suddenly all hell broke loose. Well, that's because in the vicinity, well, round about the ruins of Cagney, there was, now this is controversial and I don't want to get into it. And, and in the book, I evade it. There's either a battery of 88 millimeter, uh, anti-aircraft guns, which have been repurposed as, as was so often the case into uh, anti-tank role on the, on the peremptory orders of a, a figure who became legendary in post-war NATO staff rides, Major Hans Ulrich. Von Luck. And that's one theory. He turns up and orders them to, 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 to turn the fire on the tanks. There is also, I mean, the, the evidence for that is mixed, other than the evidence of, of what seems to be a rather competent and uh, dynamic officer, Von Luck. But more prosaically, it may just have been another of Major Arthur Becker's self-propelled 75mm pack uh, anti-tank, anti-tank gun batteries, or both. And, and uh, that's where I leave it. Is I, I, I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows. Well, whatever the truth, it, truth of it, there was a storm of fire which took C Squadron in enfilade as they were preparing to cross the railway embankment. So this is hitting them from the left-hand side. The C Squadron commander, Major Chris Nichols, was one of the first to be hit. Charlie Workman had a horrific view of his demise uh, and uh, he saw him struggling to get out of his turret before falling back into the burning Sherman. And you're going to tell us what 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman of 1st Troop witnessed. As we started to get to the 2nd Railway Line, I saw all the tanks blowing up, brewing up. 
Everyone was on the wireless. There was a regimental net. When a tank was brewed up, very often its wireless operator might come up and say, we've been hit! Otherwise, all you could see was the smoke, the flames. It was a summer's day. There was blazing tanks, wounded men running around, people who'd got out of a tank that had been brewed up, coming back towards us. It was an awful scene. People staggering past, covered in blood, being burned. We were pretty sure it was 88mm guns. It wasn't dug in tanks. It was the most feared thing, and the first thing ever reported on the wireless, and they'd give a map reference. They went straight down on your map. Tank after tank after tank, just going up. Blazing tanks. The Sherman was called the Ronson, because they went on fire so easily, like a lighter. They mean a cigarette lighter. We weren't hit, but the people to my right were all being hit. Several were killed. Now, the sight of burning Shermans is just terrible. And this is what Trooper James Donovan of B Squadron says. People say, how can something made out of steel burn? It was frightening, really, because they just glow red hot. You've got so much petrol, oil, hydraulics in there. It's amazing how they do burn. Now, what I'm, what I'm trying to get through to people, both in this podcast and in the book, is inside those steel furnaces are their friends. And, and of course, they're very aware, very aware that it could have been them and that any second it might be them. Now, um, the trooper driven by uh, Trooper Harold Wilson and it's no time for humour here, it was hit. Uh, and he's extremely fortunate, Gary, because his tank doesn't immediately catch fire. And that slight delay give, give the, gave it the crew and Harold Wilson himself time to make their escape. And this is what Harold Wilson says. He was in four troop C squadron. All of a sudden, hell broke loose. There was everything firing. We dodged along, firing here, firing there, moving along. You'd see a tank go up, but you keep going. We'd stopped and been firing, and suddenly a command comes. We've been hit! Bail out! I couldn't feel it. I shouldn't feel it if it hit the turret. Not really. Besides, they went in so hard and so fast, these shells, you hardly felt them. It would only be a shudder. Well, a shudder could have been me hitting a hole or anything. He was a driver. I bailed out. I made a dive. When I got out, there was the gunner and the crew commander out, but no operator. If it hit the turret and went in, it was usually bound to be fatal one way or another. There wasn't much room when one of them shells came in through and buzzed around it. He means if it came into the turret, it's going to kill someone in that turret. Now, whatever damage their own fire is inflicting on the Germans, it was nothing compared to the hell that was surrounding them in the tanks. And this is what Trooper John Thorpe of Four Troop C Squadron says. Going on in front of me, brew up after brew up. Some tank crews are on fire and rolling about on the ground trying to put their clothes out. But this is a ripe cornfield. And soon, what with burning tanks, burning corn and smoke mortar shells, visibility is being shut out. Now, all the tanks in front of us are burning fiercely, and immediately in front, 20 yards away, I see a tank boy climbing out of a turret, which is spurting flames, but he does not make it. He gets as far as putting one leg up to step out of the turret and falls backwards inside. Explosions of ammunition are taking place in the burning tanks, and in the almost still air of this hot sunny day, huge smoke rings leave their turrets rising high into the windless sky. That's a fantastic account. That was, I didn't interview John Thorpe. That was a memoir he left. Now, in desperation, that th- some of them re- reversed, retiring back to the railway embankment. By that time, uh, a lot of them had lost touch with the rest of the regiment and they attached themselves to the 23rd Hussars who are following up. And now we're, uh, this is just a point. We're going to have a break for uh, uh, an advert. It seems unfortunate to do this, but we have to. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Now, meanwhile, the A and B squadrons of the 2nd, 5th and 4th Fire Yeomanry were pushing on, heading towards the well-defended villages of Solier and Four. That's right in front of them, yeah. They were beginning to suffer severe casualties from strong fire emanating from both directly ahead and from Freneville and Le Poirier on their left flank. So they're, 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 they've got the fire from the village. Uh, the C squadron has been basically destroyed from Cagney, but they are now, A and B have been hit from the front and left flank. Uh, by 11.15, it, to be honest, the, the second fire from fourth at Yeomanry have come to a bloody shuddering halt. And Major, John's, Major Sir John Gilmore, B squadron, he's struggling to keep control in an almost impossible situation i mean can you imagine the, the the problems he's facing they're going all around them i mean what's one factor that people often forget with tanks what what what, what is a problem that's happened uh, that, well and, and we've said this on a number of occasions they are now beyond the range of most of the british artillery and so we're effectively on their own just when they most desperately needed help. Uh, so a front of them, Gilmore's got German infantry. He's got multiple anti-tank batteries, uh, which he doesn't know where they are. But there's something else, something else, something else. What is that? Well, more ominously, there's reinforcements from the 21st Panzer Division and the 1st SS Panzer Division, and they're beginning to move forward to join the fray. Wow. Yeah. Now, Gilmore's tanks were all but helpless in the wide-open fields, with the Germans on higher ground able to pound them at will. In all the chaos, Gilmore kept his head and he called for aerial support. And you're going to tell us what Major Sir John Gilmore of B Squadron says. We called in typhoons through brigade to try and help and knock out the anti-tank guns. We saw the typhoon attack. I think they were quite effective. I don't think at the time that we realised some of the fire was coming from anti-tank guns from even further back from what we were actually seeing. We came to a halt just after the second railway line. Now, for... The, the situation is just dire for him, for B Squadron, and one by one, in front of him, his squadron is being blown to pieces in front of his bloody eyes. Now, what what is happening to the rest of the, the 2nd, 5th and 4th? Well, the remnants of C Squadron moved forwards across the embankment behind A and B Squadrons, but it's hopeless. Now... Hutchison, Captain Hutchison, and two of the troops from A Squadron are ordered to turn and face um, to the left and try and suppress the fire coming from La Poirier and Four on that side. Now, one of those troops was Steel Brownlee's troop, uh, Four troop, and that will continue to defend the left flank. Um, now, uh, th th this is a, an amazing account. He's one of our favourites already, isn't he? Uh, Terry Boyne, Trooper Terry Boyne of uh, Four Troop, leaves a, a fantastically vivid account, which gives an idea of, of what he experienced. Now, he's a loader operator, loader wireless operator. He's got a dual role, and this is what he says. It seemed that fire was coming from all places. The radio was full of voices coming up, picking out targets. The trees seemed to house the 88s, and round the sides of them were the uh, panthers were reported here, there and everywhere. People were just firing at will on the move, which is not the most accurate way of doing it. We were firing at all sorts. The commander would be selecting the target. If you had a second, you could look out, get the gist of what you were uh, potting at. Within the trees, you could pump HE into it so that they got air bursts. And if it was an 88mm crewed by 7 or 8, that would at least keep their heads down. 
it would give them something to think about rather than giving them the pleasure of firing at you. When it came to Panthers, then HE was no use to you at, at all. You needed to be something like 600 yards range to really do damage. Anything more than that, the uh, AP shots would just skate straight off. There is nothing worse than watching an uh, accurate shot hit and then just fly up in the air. You could see flashes from the guns. It was hectic. It was very hot. You were sweating because of the heat. A petrol and cordite smell pervaded everything. A burning sensation in your throat. The noise was fairly fierce. You'd got the engine noise and with headphones on, you got the persistent cackle of the radio. When the gun fired, you got this rock as the thing went off. The recoil, the hot shell, the case would come flying out the back and land on the floor. You had another one ready, and as soon as the shell case ejected, you wanged another one in. When there was sudden, uh, sudden lull, you looked round. You had butterflies. I don't think you'd be human if you didn't. It felt at the time we were throwing ourselves at a very solid brick wall and there didn't appear to be any real giving it. You don't get the overall picture. You only see the little fragment that you're really looking at. And as a loader operator, you don't look an awful lot. You hear it more than you see it. He's talking about uh, armour-piercing shells when he, he says AP. That's uh, a great attack. You really get an idea of the sort of frenzy of it all. Um, now, what, wherever they were, whatever they did, the, the tanks of the second Fife and Fulfer Yeomanry are being picked off one by one. Now, James Donovan, um, uh, he remembers, um, this is another long quote from you, Gary, I'm afraid. He remembers an exchange of fire with two German tanks, and it's a real hair-raising business. So your trooper, James Donovan, this is B Squadron. Looking through the periscope, I saw two tanks moving up behind the hedge facing us. You could just see the tops of their turrets. I said on the intercom to the crew commander, there's tank on our, on our left. One of the crew commanders was actually combing his hair. He was so unconcerned. I don't think he'd seen us. I can picture him now. He had blonde hair. He picked a field hat up and put it on. And I realised they were German tanks and not ours. They were panthers. We started to reverse and the crew commander brought the gun round onto them. They'd seen us by then. The first one came crashing through the hedge in front of us, 40 to 50 yards away. As he came through the hedge, our gunner fired and it hit him. We saw the tracer from our shell come off the front and just zoom off into the air. It bounced off. As our driver was reversing, you could see the gun of their tank come round and woof! It came through the front somewhere. There was a hell of a noise. You don't know what it is. It all happens within seconds. The next thing we heard was bail out. I was in the co-driver's seat. I turned round and kicked the release on the escape hatch in the floor behind me. My thoughts were, if we go out through the front, they'll just shoot us down. I kicked the lever over and the escape, escape hatch dropped and the crow, that was uh, his colleague Dave Sutherland's nickname, and myself went through and the others came out of the turret. As we crawled back, Boiling water was coming down. It must have gone through the radiators. So we came out the front and ran round to the back. Other tanks were firing. What they were firing at, I don't know. It's all going on. All five of us got out and got to the back of the tank. Now, this is just happening all over the bloody place, and, and it's soon all over by the shouting for, for the second Fife and Four for Yeomanry. The headquarters squadron, they'd move forward in the final stages to join what you call the Sabre squadrons, they're known as the, the, but it made no difference. It just, it just adds to the number of tanks that are being knocked out. They're, they're just making nowhere. By around 12.30, uh, there, there are only 20 tanks. Uh, of the second five and four was left, um, um, and and at this point the um, the reserve regiment, the regiments coming up behind them, the twenty third hussars, begin to arrive on the scene. Well, does this make any difference? No, nope, makes very little difference to the de deteriorating situation as they are advancing on the same objectives of the second five and four fire yeomanry, and they met the same fate as they entered the killing ground in front of Bourgeois Ridge. Now, you might be saying, so where's the Guards Armoured Division that were meant to be coming up behind them and going to the left? Where's the 7th Armoured Division that were meant to be coming up behind them and then moving through? Well, they'd been late starting, that, that and, and then the delays just multiply and multiply. They'd had problems crossing the Orne Bridges. They'd even more problem getting through the limited minefield 
gaps. Uh, and, and it was only after about three hours, the very first elements of the Guards Armour Division begin to arrive and they move up to start to attack Cagney and Laporia uh, before pushing on to Freneville. And then theoretically on to Vimont, but that doesn't happen. Uh, what, what, how successful are they? Well, they're thwarted by the same potent combination of German panzers, self-propelled guns, anti-tank guns, and infantry. So it's a well-coordinated German defence. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, what, what's happened to the Seventh Armoured then? Well, behind the, uh, uh, the the guards, the Seventh Armoured Division were also severely held up by the substantial congestion, and then they're further hampered by what uh, some observers have described as excessive caution in their approach to the front line with the unpleasant prospect of attacking, of attacking Fours and Solier. Now, this is it's one of those things where some people have really torn into the Seventh Armoured and said, oh, they're, they're broken men after the desert warfare and all the rest of it. I, I prefer to just just be a bit more calm about it. Uh, that, that people who are involved weren't so calm at the time, I can assure you. But it, it just, it was one of those things that just went wrong. They didn't get forward quickly enough and, and it's one of those things that happened. So what happens to the, uh, the remnants of the second Fife and Four for Yeomany? Uh, what, uh, they, they, do they endure or, or are they pulled back? Well, at about 1500, they're ordered to pull back across the railway embankment east of Grindeville. Uh, their battle's over. They'd lost 37 tanks. That's a lot. Uh, uh, now, um, what was, uh, overall, uh, at the end of a, a long day, um, the, uh, the, the first, uh, the, 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 in all, the first, uh, the eighth and second Canadian camps corps, or the, the, the people involved in the, the greater attack, because I'm talking about the support attacks, in all, they'd had 1500 casualties and, uh, 50, uh, and 200 tanks have been lost. Well, what would you say was the overall result of the assault, uh, the, the Goodwood assault by the armoured divisions? Well, the result's clear. As a powerful blow by three armoured divisions, it had been a total failure. Collectively, the advance lost all cohesion and the impetus. It had degenerated into isolated squadrons, bashing themselves against the deeply layered German defences. Uh, Germans, how are they doing? Well, they too had suffered in the hard fighting. There was no doubt the tremendous bombing and artillery barrage had taken their toll on the Germans. Now, at the end of the day, the Germans had been estimated to have lost some 109 tanks. They were also forced to bring up both the 12th SS Panzer Division and the 116th Panzer Division to stem the attacks. Now, uh, hang on, yeah. In some senses, that mean, does that mean Montgomery's plan's working? In the sense that he's trying to suck in German armoured reserves to clear the way for the Americans? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. In some sense, yes. <laughs> now, as the second... Can I just point out that, would it be true to say that most of the damage was done by the air raid and the artillery? <laughs> yes. Rather well, and, than and that's acknowledged, isn't it? The, the, the Germans are saying that it, themselves. Now, as the second five and four fire yeomanry tanks fall back, the Honey Recce tanks uh, are pressed into service. And this is what Trooper John Gray of the Recce Troop says. And this is a, a, an absolutely terrible quote. And John Gray is a humorous man, but this isn't funny. We had instructions to turn around, pick up any crews and bring them back. We had Lance Sergeant Tubby Watson. He was the drummer in the pipe band. We picked up several others. We put them in the hull with with, with no turret. The... Um, the um, the honey tanks had had their turrets taken off by this time. Uh, we had we had all their hull space. We had one in the co-driver's seat. I was lying across the back of the engine on the outside. Most of them were all right, except for Tubby. He had half his head blown away. He was alive, moaning like hell, but he was alive still. Nothing we could do. We weren't medics. We needed to get him back. Then the tank went up. I went up in the air and landed on the ground. It was on fire. I had burns on my face, my hands, part of my arms. Everybody who could got, get out got out. I know the wireless operator got out. An officer and I tried to get Tubby Watson out, climbing up on the side, but the flames were such you couldn't get to him. We would have been putting our heads and faces and arms into the flames. He wouldn't have been aware of anything that was going on. He died in there. We did get Jimmy Byers out through the hatch. His leg had gone. It was a mess. He must have been unconscious. He wasn't bawling and shouting. And Jimmy was one for shouting if he wanted to. A Bren carrier, a Bren gun carrier came and we got him onto it. I think uh, Jim Byers seems to have survived because he's not on the list of dead that. But I think, um, I think just the, just the flash of humour there when he says, uh, 
<laughs> he was one for shouting if he wanted to. But what 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 an awful quote you made me read there, to be honest. Um, and this is what I mean. This is the sort of thing that's all over. Uh, this is tank warfare, isn't it? Raw, red raw. Uh, uh, wow. Yeah, but there was yet more terrible tasks awaiting prospective volunteers from the recce troop. Jeff Haywood and most of the others simply couldn't face it and declined. And who can blame them? Well, uh, Jeff, I mean, I've, I know Jeff. He's still alive, uh, and. Um, uh, just think of, l- listen to this. Um, somebody came round asking for volunteers to help get bodies out of tanks. We'd all, we'd already been told what happens to, 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 to people when the, the tank catches fire. How did they get these bodies out? We were told how to attach a rope round what was left of them. And sometimes a horrifying thing happened that the body would disintegrate when pulling. It was something that the average person couldn't face. There was only one volunteer. It wasn't me. It was a former grave digger in civilian life. Wow. Wow. Mm. Now, gradually, the wounded had gathered up and ferried back to the Royal Army Medical Corps dressing station. The rescued crews were taken back to the Ranville glider field, where they lost yet more men in a German night air and, raid. And that's a big section of the book, because that, that air raid is horrific, Carrie. Can you imagine, people, that you've managed to get out of a tank... You've got across a battlefield that's bloody dangerous. You've got back to safety and the bloody Germans launch an air raid and there's loads killed that night. Uh, awful. Well, the regiment was devastated on the 18th of July. Um, the scale of their losses was difficult to process. Men couldn't help but ponder how they'd survived unscathed when so many of their friends had been killed or wounded. Oh, survivor guilt. Uh, and and they, 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 as they, just think what they, each of those lads is thinking about. They go into Lager, that, into overnight camp, just, just west of Le Mesnil from Antal. That, uh, uh, and this is what Trooper Terry Boyne says. He was thinking about that night. Three Troop A Squadron. There must be an element of luck in this, where the one next to you goes down and you stay up. There is a luck or a divine somebody up there. You're just thankful that you got through the day. Now, there's just 25 serviceable tanks left in the squadron when when, when they've sort of got things in going. In the regiment. And sorry, in the regiment. I said squadron, didn't I? I mean regiment, absolutely. And these are organised ad hoc into two squadrons. And uh, next day, they're, they're actually back. They're not meant to be in action, but they're called forward because there's still trouble. Um, it's on the 19th, they're trying to take the, the rest of the Borkabas Ridge. Uh, uh, and the five and four for, for, for help them capture Hubert Folly. Uh, but what a cost. What a cost, Gary. This is all... Co- and and th- it's th- the very nature of this cost that has made Operation Goodwood very controversial amongst military historians and amongst the people who took f- part in it at, at the time. Um, well, so so what, what, what are we thinking about the overall picture, Gary? Well, the massed arm had been employed in a very narrow front attack to try and take uh, strong German positions, which were organised in considerable depth, beyond artillery range and without the proper immediate infantry support that was essential to maintain momentum. So they failed, and they failed because the the, the armour was being, as we intimated right at the start of this, it was being used wrongly. The, if you're in a, the armoured division needs space to manoeuvre, and they need close infantry support if they're to succeed. Um uh, and and just just give me an example. To give me an, a, 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 what happens when the Germans try try to operate on their own without infantry support and in such a cavalier fashion? What happens to them? Well, the German Panzer divisions, if if they were to be employed in such a cavalier manner, they're too going to be um, roughly handled. And that's putting it extremely politely. <laughs> the result was terrible for the for the British. The the tank losses, which were were somewhat difficult to accurate, accurately tabulate for the three armoured divisions involved, the estimates vary. They, it ranges widely from 275 to 500, destroyed or damaged to a very yeah, degree. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because of, uh, I mean, a lot of tanks are, are, are reclaimed and, and, and there's, there are statistical anomalies all over the place, and you know me in statistics. And it's suggested that the Germans may have lost just over 80 tanks and self-propelled guns. Now, in one sense, I would say these losses are more damaging for the Germans. They're, they're finding it a lot more difficult to replace hardware at this time of the war. Uh, British replacements close at hand. The, 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 the British, re- they get new crews and tanks almost the next day. Um, 
Uh, what, what do you think? If the Goodwood plan had any merits at all, and I'm not sure it did, um, what, what do you think did for it right from the start? Well, the congestion and resulting severe delays inflicted by the pinch points created by the river, canal and minefield that the tanks had to pass through to reach the start lines. Are those uh, not foreseeable? They are. Now, although useful ground had been taken to enlarge the Orne bridgehead, the Goodwood gains had not come up to expectations, and any fond hopes of a breakthrough advance to Falais had been exposed as unrealistic. Well, Falais was, yeah, it, that was contingency planning in one sense. I, I don't think they ever really thought they were going to get there, but it, it, it was part of the plan. Um, what could have been done better? Well, it was evident that the artillery fire plans and uh, aerial bombings, they needed to be controlled with greater flexibility if they were to meet the needs of the men on the ground in a fast-developing battle situation. They also clearly need infantry. I mean, the idea of three armoured divisions on their own, they need more infantry. I know they have their own motorised infantry, but they need more infantry, don't they? Yeah, and the main achievement of Operation Goodwood was in the attritional grinding down of the German Panzer Divisions, and this became for Montgomery the mantra he deployed in defending the battle. But you've got to ask at what cost. At what cost, and and, yeah. um, Now, um, Montgomery knows that in a few days the Americans would launch Operation Cobra, that's to the south of this area and, and and that area would now be relatively well it was before <laughs> but it would now definitely be denuded almost completely of german uh, armor yeah, what's the stats then well while some six and a half panzer divisions were facing the british second army around Cannes, there were only one and a half panzer divisions facing the american first army so are we ambivalent about this uh, it's it's well, I don't know. Perhaps it was a necessary battle, but there was a terrible human cost with over 5,500 casualties killed, missing and wounded across the British forces involved in the main and subsidiary operations. Now, um, after the battle, there's a, a, a there's, I mean, the five and four for Yeomanry, second at five, four for Yeomanry in a terrible state. There was even, even thoughts that they would be broken up to supply reinforcements to the regiments because that is happening in the British Army. Uh, um, so we're going to leave you with a, a bit of a cliffhanger, are we, Gary? What's the cliffhanger? Would the second five and four for Yeomanry survive to fight again? And will we ever learn how to say four for? Well, amongst other things, based on today. Right, well, again, I would ask you to consider buying my book, Burning Steel, by me, Peter Hart. Uh, it's, a burn- uh, it's a tank regiment at war, 1939-45. I'm extremely proud of it. It, it. I hope it does justice to those wonderful veterans that I was uh, privileged to interview for the Imperial War Museum. Um, and uh, and again, uh, if if you want to support us, then you can be you can follow the, the various methods now on social media. Buy us a coffee, support. Uh, what's it? Have I not thought this support. through? No, you haven't thought this through. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?